my friends. Welcome to Season 7, Week 5 of Beformed. We're reading from Ecclesia de Eucharistia, the dignity of the Eucharistic celebration in Week 5. So let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, for his passion, death, and resurrection, and his gift of the Eucharist his own body, blood, soul, and divinity coming to us uh, in a very personal way through the centuries. Increase our faith and reverence for the Eucharist. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, a little review. In the last four weeks, we've talked about the Eucharist as the mystery of faith, We've talked about how the Eucharist builds the church. The Eucharist is apostolic. It comes from the apostles and sends us on mission. And last week we looked at the Eucharist is communion with God the Father and with one another, actually with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with other members of the church. And today we're going to look at the dignity of the Eucharistic celebration. So again, we're looking at Ecclesia de Eucharistia, Paragraphs 47 to 52, 2003 encyclical from Pope St. John Paul II on the Eucharist. And you can find this online. So the introduction. In chapter 5, Pope St. John Paul II takes up the question of the dignity with which the Holy Eucharist is to be celebrated. He says, the heart of the celebration is the account of the Last Supper, which we can find in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and also in 1 Corinthians from St. Paul, where Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body, takes the cup and says, this is my blood. So this is when uh, Jesus gave the Holy Eucharist to the church at the Last Supper, and it's the centerpiece of the, the Eucharistic prayer of the Mass. And so in anticipation of his own passion and death, Jesus handed over his life for us sacramentally. And he told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, I will be with you always until the end of the age. And the Eucharist is one of those ways, along with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus fulfills that promise. He goes on to say that our Lord's uh, celebration of the Last Supper was both simple and solemn. And so this is the model of all of the liturgical rites that we do in the church, that we make them simple and that we celebrate them solemnly. Uh, he said, Jesus commanded that the 12 apostles renew his last supper in each community of believers until his final coming. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And we've been doing this for 2,000 years. The whole history of the church may be described as the story of the apostles' obedience to the Lord's commission at the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. So the first point today is on the anointing at Bethany. And I really like this because you may have heard people say, boy, the church has all of these beautiful buildings, artwork. You know, there's so much money in the church. Why don't they sell it all? and give it to the poor. And so Pope St. John Paul II takes us back to Bethany as a reason why the church has these beautiful buildings and the sacred art. So Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, 
anointed Jesus' head with the most precious oil before his passion and death. You remember this? So Mary pours the oil over Jesus' head. And who was offended? It was Judas, the one who betrays Christ. And he says, why were you wasting that oil in this way? We could have used the oil, you know, sold it to the poor and fed, uh, sold it and fed the poor. So does that sound like people today where they say, you could sell all of this and, and give to the poor? Jesus is the one who betrayed Christ. Jesus' response uh, is interesting. He doesn't diminish our responsibility to the poor. But he says that Mary's act was fitting, was a fitting reverence for his body, and we believe the Eucharist is his body, which would be an instrument, the instrument he used to carry out our redemption. So again, Jesus is not diminishing our responsibility to the poor, but he indicates that prior to serving the poor, uh, we need love and devotion for him and his body, the Eucharist. So it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And I would say that the Catholic Church um, takes care of the poor better than any other institution in the world. And because Mary showed us how to show reverence for Christ's body, our beautiful churches, our artwork, our ways of, of showing that reverence, and we serve the poor as well. The Catholic Church takes care of more people in hospitals, educates more people, and helps the poor more than any institution in the world. And so we have beautiful buildings, art, altars, furnishing, vessels, and linens. All of this is to show dignity, respect, and reverence for Jesus in the Eucharist, especially reverencing his body. Jesus instructed the apostles in a very detailed way how to prepare the Last Supper in the upper room. Remember, Jesus says, go to this place, tell them that we need this, this room for the Last Supper, this is how you're to prepare it. And so he gives these details for us. And we're, we're just following up and doing this in remembrance of him in a very dignified, uh, honorable way. So we do this all to show reverence for Jesus, who is both the priest and the victim in the Eucharistic celebration. You'll hear this in some Eucharistic prayers where Jesus is the priest, the one offering the sacrifice. And he's the victim. He's the one being offered. He's offering himself to the Father. And so, if you think about this, in many areas of the world, these beautiful churches were built by immigrants, maybe people who mortgaged their own homes so that they could give uh, an honorable and dignified church to, to worship Christ. And again, some will say this is a waste, uh, but Judas said it was a waste to, to give Jesus the best uh, uh, anointing with oil. And so that's why the church has these beautiful cathedrals um, to show dignity and honor and respect for the Lord. The second point here is about the sacred banquet. We're talking about the dignity of the celebration. So St. John Paul II asked this question, and I quote, Could there ever be an adequate means of expressing the acceptance of that self-gift which the divine bridegroom, Jesus, continually makes to his bride the church by bringing the sacrifice offered once and for all on the cross to successive generations of believers, us today and into the future, and thus becoming nourishment for all the faithful. 
In other words, how can we give due honor and respect to the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us? We want to give him the best that we have in order to show uh, honor and respect. In the Eucharistic celebration, Jesus is offering himself to us in the Holy Eucharist as he's offering himself to the Father uh, on the cross. Think about that. The, the beauty of what's happening, we want to really give the Lord our best in worshiping him. So the Holy Eucharist is not just a banquet or a nice meal around a table. And I, say, I think sometimes after Vatican II, that part was emphasized more than it is a sacred banquet and a sacrifice. So in this sacred banquet, we're partaking of the holiness of God himself. And so St. John Paul II reminds us that the Eucharist is truly the bread of angels. Therefore, it must be approached with profound, with a profound sense of humility and a sense of our unworthiness because of our own sinfulness. Just like the centurion said, and this will be our Lexio Divina for this week, where he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. So when we pray at Mass, there's a sense of intimacy with God, and we, we have a great sense of awe. So it's both this, God is intimately involved in our lives, but he's also the God of the universe. So in that intimacy, God is inviting us to participate in his son's suffering, death, and resurrection. In this great awe, we are in the presence of God himself. And so it's another reason why our churches are built not as halls or, or meeting places, but they give dignity to honor this God that we are worshiping. The next point is about liturgical law. This may sound really official, but if you think about it, the church needs to have standards because, remember, this is the universal church around the world. And this isn't about my celebration or my mass. This is about we're following the Lord's uh, will to do this in remembrance of me. And so there needs to be guidelines in order to keep uh, uniformity around the world. So the outward aspects of the celebration of the Holy Eucharist express our in interior devotion and in, in imitation of Mary of Bethany who, you know, honored Jesus with that expensive oil. So the church has developed these laws to guide the celebration so that it gives due honor and reverence to the Eucharistic celebration. And so the law guides the minimum respect for the Eucharist. So I always ask, are we minimalists? I hope not. <laughs> you know, I hope, men, you never say to your spouse, Honey, what is the least I need to do to keep you happy? That's a minimalist. We need to be maximalists. We need to give our spouses the best that we have. We need to give God the best that we have. And so the church offers uh, guidance for sacred art, sacred architecture, sacred music. All of this is meant to inspire faith, to lift our minds and hearts to God, especially around the Eucharist. And he says there should be special care taken for the altar and tabernacle to give honor and respect to the Eucharist. So uh, I'm, I'm very blessed here at St. Isaac Jogues to have a beautiful church, um, beautiful altar and tabernacle that gives that, that due honor and respect and reverence to, to God. The church also asked that we use 
beautiful vessels. So all of our chalices and saboria need to be at least uh, lined with precious metals, gold or silver, because they are touching the very body and blood of Christ. We don't use porous materials, especially with the blood of Christ, because we believe every drop and every particle of the Eucharist is fully Jesus himself. So we also use sacred linens uh, that, that, are, that are nice. So we have a corporal, which in Latin that comes from the word meaning the body. That's where the body of Christ will be. So we have put a corporal on the altar. We use a purificator to purify the vessels. Um, again, uh, it was so beautiful. One of my uh, nephews who isn't Catholic uh, came to Mass, and he said it, it just touched him the way that we purified the vessels to show that respect for Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Sacred music has developed over time to lift our minds and hearts to the great mystery of faith in the Eucharist. Now, I know that everybody has different tastes in music. We know, you know, in the secular music, you've got country and Western. You've got pop. You've got rap. You've got oldies. You've got, you know, all the, the new stuff. Everybody has different tastes, and, and we want to bring that into church, but the church is for only, only certain kinds of music that are meant to give honor and reverence to God. The church gives a special place of honor to Gregorian chant, uh, but also to hymns and, and music that theologically do not diminish the Eucharist, and, uh, and they're all meant to, to lift our minds and hearts to God. And then he talks about the, the beautiful history of art that we have in the church, both in the East and in the West. And the key is that the church above all else is a profoundly Eucharistic church. And boy, I've been in, into churches where it kind of falls flat, the art and architecture, architecture. And then I've been in churches that just lift my mind and heart to God. And that's, that's the goal of sacred art, sacred music, sacred architecture. The next thing he tackles in this chapter is enculturation. So Pope St. John Paul II reflects on the legitimate desire of the church in different parts of the world to employ the, quote, forms, styles, and sensibilities of different cultures in the Eucharistic celebration so that it can truly be spiritual food for all peoples. You know, you might see a celebration in Africa where... There's, you know, music and dancing where it's, it's part, of the, part of the culture. Any kind of, and, and this enculturation, this word means uh, the rooting of the Catholic faith and practice in a particular culture. So all of this needs to be done uh, with the church authority in the local diocese, but also in union with the universal church. Because, again, this Eucharistic celebration is something that is universal it's not my mass. It's not your mass. It is uh, what we're trying to follow, what Christ wants us to do. So he says, this is a delicate process as there may be parts of a culture that need um, purification and transformation before they can serve the Eucharistic mystery. And we've all been a part probably in the last 50 years of what may be seen as enculturation, but it might be an abuse of the Eucharistic celebration, the dignity of what is going on. And we have to be careful about syncretism, which is kind of combining maybe other f 
religions and forms of worship um, that may not be Christian or, or Catholic and uh, maybe water down or be offensive to Jesus in the Eucharist. He, sa- he says the enculturation process must always be secondary to respect for the mystery of the Holy Eucharist. So we never want the source and summit of our faith, Jesus in the Eucharist, to be obscured or even worse, disrespected. So any experimentation needs to run through the church authority and the Holy See in Rome. Again, this is a universal church, not just a local church. The next section is on the responsibility of priests. And so my ears and eyes perked up as I heard this. So what is my responsibility as a priest to keep the dignity of the Eucharistic celebration? So he says, priests act in the person of Christ in persona Christi at the Holy Eucharist and therefore bear a heavy responsibility for its worthy celebration. They are, and he says, I quote, to provide a witness to and a service of communion, not only for the community taking part in the celebration, but also for the universal church, which is part of every Eucharist. So we have to be faithful to what the church teaches. So please don't ask us to do something that is not faithful to the church. Just like I would never ask you to be unfaithful to your spouse. Um, My spouse is the church and, uh, You know, I need to be faithful to maintain communion with the universal church. And so he says, priests are to celebrate the Mass reverently and to be a witness to the importance and dignity of Jesus in the Eucharist. He also speaks frankly about abuses that have crept into the Eucharistic celebration because of a, quote, misguided sense of creativity and adaptation. I remember one of our professors in the seminary shared that in his younger days, He remembers going to a college mass where they had pizza and beer as, you know, the the bread and the wine. You know, I'm sure the priest was trying to be cool and trying to fit in and like, this isn't this, you know, isn't this cool? No, it's not. Um, He was making it his own and he's really breaking communion with what the church teaches. So, St. John Paul II begs priests to follow liturgical law, especially how we celebrate the Holy Eucharist. So remember, this is not my private possession or it's not the community's possession, the Mass. This belongs to uh, God and the universal church. And so our observance of liturgical law is a fundamental expression of love of Christ and of the church. And so... If you see me following the church's law, that's a way that I'm loving my bride, the church, and loving Jesus in the Eucharist. It's not about me. This is about Jesus. Um, so this doesn't mean that we have to lose our personality. You know, we can, we each preach differently. We have our own own styles. But it's a recognition that the church is much bigger than, than I am, uh, and we're to foster communion with the universal church. And so in conclusion... Uh, St. John Paul II uh, asked that the church prepare a special document on the fitting and dignified celebration of Holy Mass. And this is in Redemptionis Sacramentum. Maybe that's another document we can study in the future. And it's about uh, on certain matters to be observed or or to be avoided regarding the Most Holy Eucharist. I just recently read it, and there's very good material in there 
very practical things that each parish can can make sure it's in place. And so it, this document is meant to inspire us to great care in approaching the Eucharistic sacrifice and banquet. And he says this, this struck me. No one is permitted to undervalue the mystery entrusted to our hands. It is too great for anyone to feel free to treat it lightly and with disregard for its sacredness and its universality. So we can't redesign the, the Mass or exploit it for our own purposes. The Eucharist is always, at one and the same time, sacrifice, banquet, and real presence of Jesus. And so I can share from my own point of view, um, you know, becoming Catholic, there were a lot of questions that I had about different things. And, you know, I thought in my own pride, I thought I knew better about certain things. And the more I studied why the church teaches what it does, the more I realized, wow, who am I to think I know more than what the church teaches and these brilliant minds that have gone before me. And so it's really given me this sense, I'm on to teach what the church teaches, and this is what's best. And that's why we find when priests move from church to church, and if one priest starts to uh, maybe make too many personal changes to the Mass, um, it causes confusion to the faithful. Then a new priest might come and, and be very faithful to what the church teaches, and people may get mad at him, or, you know, why haven't we been doing this the whole time? I always say if, if each priest did what he was supposed to do, we would find this, this union um, from, you know, Rome, the Pope, all of our bishops, to all of the priests in each of the areas. So um, St. John Paul II encourages all of us priests to be faithful to what the Church has handed on. The Lectio Divina for this week comes from Matthew 8, 5-13. Again, it's the, about the centurion. I'll read it quickly, and then you can pray with this, maybe in your small group or on your own. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion approached him and appealed to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, suffering dreadfully. Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion said in reply, Lord, I am not worthy to have you enter under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a person subject to authority, with soldiers subject to me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come here, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Amen, I say to you, in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will Recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom will be driven out into the outer darkness, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, You may go as you have believed. Let it be done for you. And at that very hour, his servant was healed. So for me, this strikes a, a chord in that, um, that humility and reverence for Christ uh, and that should be our, our approach when we enter church, you know, to come in with reverence, to say, here we have, we're having the intimacy with God who loves us. We're also coming into this place uh, in awe and wonder at the God of the universe who created us. And this is our opportunity to thank him, to praise him, 
to beg him for things, to cry out to him, whatever it is, but to show reverence and honor to Jesus in the Eucharist. And so let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you for the gift of the Eucharist. Help us to be humble in your presence, to show you reverence, honor, and give you the dignity, uh, to reverence the dignity that you, that you have in our eyes. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of announcements. So maybe when you see this, it might be after you see this, um, Friday, October 6th, uh, we're inviting all B-formers to go to St. Michael's in Wheaton at 7 p.m. Bishop Hicks will be celebrating Mass. There'll be several men who are in the process of becoming deacons in a couple years. They're going to be receiving the rite of lector, and it's a beautiful celebration. All are welcome. It'll also be live-streamed. We'll give you the, the, uh, the stream. Next week, week six, we'll be talking about being at the School of Mary regarding the Eucharist. And a reminder, do what you can and be formed. Don't overwhelm yourself. Just take one step closer to Christ. May God bless you and your families. And to all of you, buen camino.